The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast as we're continuing our retrospective of James Whale, the man, the myth, the legend. We earlier had an in- the interview of James Curtis, who wrote a book on James Whale. We had also Journey's End to start off our movie retrospective with Rich Chamberlain, so you can look back in our archive list and go back and check those movies out if you haven't done so already. But today... We're going to be talking about Waterloo Bridge from 1931 because there's a couple movies with that same title. You know, make sure you get. We're doing a 1931 version, and I'm joined by the other half of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, Mister Jeff Owens. Whoa! What an introduction. Thank you, Steve. Oh, you're welcome, uh, sir. I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Uh, how many episodes have you dropped today? Have I dropped today? Yeah, yeah, I can't keep up with the pace. How many of you uh, posted today? Um, depending on when this goes out, it's hard to say. It would be in the 60s. That's okay. In the date, you know, so it's hard to say, you know, exactly what episode. No, I, I, I'm trying to be funny. Like today, how many have you dropped, you know, because it seems like you, every time I look, there's a new one. Well, it's, we're, we're, we're trying to get to weekly and, um, and, and that kind of stuff. So, I think we've been able to maintain that pace now for a while. But barring unforeseen circumstances, you know, health and school related with the kids, um, which this retrospective helps with is that when Ben gets in, uh, busy with his schoolwork and has trouble with editing, this, that's where the, one of the ideas of the James Well retrospective series came from is to have things that we could put in during those weeks and have a theme going on. And also, I was really interested in learning more about James Well after reading – Mr. Curtis's book, and then you start to look at his filmography, and everybody always focuses on those same films, which is right up your podcast alley, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Old Dark House. And nobody talks about Showboat, Journey's End, Waterloo Bridge, The um, the Man in the Iron Mask, and so on. He's done like 20 films about around that. We're not doing every one of them. We're doing about 10 to give people good sampling. But he was not... A, a horror genre only director. He was able to do just about anything, comedy, action, um, romance, horror. I mean, he was able to do it all. Yeah. And I'm not well versed in his other non-genre movies. I will tell you though, that the uh, company that I occasionally write for in England, we belong dead and has put out some books. Uh, I did do a, um, piece a chapter on James Quayle so at that time I, I sort of dug into a little bit of his movies I, I kind of took it a, a, a different way and tried to pick up on some of the themes in the movies but I had seen Waterloo Bridge before and I like it quite a bit but other than that I sadly have not seen a lot of his other movies well Rich and I both recommended Journey's End you know so that's a, that's, a, that's a good one to see which came out the year prior to this which was his film directing debut 
um, where, he, where he had controlled the whole film. There were some films where he did um, the talky part, the audio, you know, because there, there was back when silent movies are transitioning over, and he came in and did the part of the directing, but not the full fit feature. But with um, Journey's End, and for all these films, he is the sole credited director to my knowledge. You know, and that's always hard to say when you go back decades and decades later, some films, but I think I think that holds true with Mr. Whale's work that we're going to be doing in this retrospective. And you saw Waterloo Bridge before. Um, when I was asking you about participating in this retrospective, you picked this once, obviously, like you said, you enjoyed it. And what, what drew, what, before we start talking about the movie proper, what particular were your first impressions of the movie? I really liked the casting. Uh, I thought, you know, May West was fantastic. May West. That's a <laughs> different Clark. movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. But I also really liked Douglas Montgomery, and I'd never seen him in anything before. He, yeah, from, I, I read the chapter in Mr. Curtis's book about this, and that apparently he was pretty green in the acting, and it caused a, sort of a slowdown in the production, and James Whale had to work with him. Uh, he definitely... He was a a pretty boy. I mean, he to me was prettier than May Clark was, but I, it worked. He had a charm to him. It worked because he was sort of innocent. Uh, you know, this boy from Canada who had joined the army. I mean, to me, his acting flaw sort of worked. I, I will. This probably won't be popular, but I think overall there were some quirks in the acting for all of them that maybe weren't quite perfect or up to snuff. So he, to me, he wasn't the only one that at times I thought, Oh, but it's hard to tell. I mean, this is 1931 film movies were that way uh, back then, you know, it, it's not like today. And other than the horror movies, I don't watch a lot of movies from this era that, that have that sort of melodramatic acting, but story-wise I liked it. It, to me, there's familiar plot points but yet they go in ways that I didn't expect. And as we get into it, I can kind of point out some of those things that I preferred the way they unfolded in this movie than I do in other movies I've seen with wartime romances. And for those that want to watch this movie, um, it's not available on streaming to my knowledge at all, but it is available in Warner Archives, Forbidden Hollywood Volume 1, which is Forbidden Hollywood because it's pre-code Hollywood. And um, it comes with two other movies on, and I think it was, it was $20. You get three movies. And um, this, to me, it's worth it because it's on DVD. Um, it's not a restored version of it, but it's it's a nice crisp copy, and you get to enjoy it. it you can see everything that's going on. And it, so it is readily available. And I saw it. I had recorded it on TCM. And uh, had a nice little introduction by Ben Mankiewicz, so I picked up a few tidbits about it there as well. And a great, great print, very clear and and clean. Yeah, you know, you and I are both physical media guys. I know it's always nice when you have it, and then you could put it in there. And if you have it recorded, you have it also available to use. But eventually. I'm sure you you have to make choices when it comes to recording. How much space do you have? <laughs> you got to make that. Do I want to get this new movie or I want to keep this one? You know, and that, that, that you you live with those tough choices, I guess. Yeah, and actually, the first I mentioned watching it the first time, there was a version on YouTube, but it's not the entire movie. The the one I found ended, and 
that's what caused me to really try to seek out and find the rest of the movie. And then coincidentally, it aired on TCM. It was meant for you to watch the whole thing. TCM knew. Yes, it was. And um, before we get into the movie also, um, tell us, give us the Reader's Digest version of the Classic Horrors Club podcast for people. This is obviously outside your wheelhouse, but you, you and Rich will both be joining me for Frankenstein's, and then you'll be in the realm of your podcast. But give people an idea what you guys do on a monthly basis. Sure. Well, we talk about two or three classic horror films, and we originally defined classic as silent film to 1978, basically Halloween being sort of a turning point. But as we have gone on and we're up into the 60s in our episodes, we've expanded that a little because I've come around to think that 80s films can be considered classics as as well. So we now sort of go up to... um, you know, the mid, early to mid eighties, we include the seventies and which we have been a lot more uh, than we originally intended to, but yeah, we, we talk about the movies. We now have a video companion where we show the trailers and, and uh, show clips from the movies and comment on those. So it's just a discussion in the format of a club meeting. It's classic horse club. So we call the meeting to order. We have old business, new business, and uh, we welcome feedback. We share it when we get it. We have guests occasionally. It's just rambling conversations and thoughts about uh, two or three classic horror movies every month. And, and one thing I enjoy is you also, on occasion, have an interview. You've had Sam Irvin and you had um, uh, Mr. Stahl, um, the writer. I can't remember his first name. Is it Dave? Oh, yeah, David Stahl. David Stahl. And oh. – um, so you'll have some interviews on there and sometimes you'll have a theme like this every summer. It seems the last two summers, it's the drive-in movies. And then sometimes you'll do an episode dedicated to an actor or a director and, and focused really on their work. And I, I, I really appreciate that because it gives an idea of some that like where we're kind of doing with this retrospective instead of doing one episode, we're doing it multiple, but it's just, it gives people an idea of how somebody grew and changed throughout their career. And I think that's an interesting when you can go back and see the differences as time goes by. Yeah, we do usually try to do a theme. In fact, our September episode, uh, if anyone listened is uh, September with Satan. And we do three 1970s Satan worship movies that were all the rage at that time. We usually have a theme, and then, yeah, if it's a, a, a certain iconic star's birthday during a month, we might decide, oh, let's, you know, they aren't, it's not Boris, well, we have done like Boris Karloff and Lugosi, but more often it's someone maybe not quite as known uh, that we dig into. We did Lionel Atwill. Uh, I really, really want to do John Carradine. He's been in, you know, millions, millions of movies, but, I, you know, what do we know about him? And they have interesting stories, and especially with the video aspect, I really like taking a person's career and going from beginning to end, not focusing so much on the particular movies, but the career as a whole. So yeah, it's, I mean, I like to keep it fresh. We, we like to try new things. It ultimately comes back down to that sort of club meeting format that I mentioned. And for listeners wondering, and you can listen to their podcast, like you listen to this one, it's they do an audio version, which is the extended full version. And then they do, a shorter version, which is ranges from like what, 40 minutes to an hour on YouTube, which Jeff mentioned where they put in the video clips and they'll have some other things on there. And um, so you, 
you, you put, it's almost like you can watch the YouTube one first and get the taste of the whole thing. And then you can go and get the, you know, it's almost like, oh, here's your snack. And then you go in for the full course meal with the audio podcast. Yeah, I like the way you put that. Yeah, people are saying, why don't you podcast on YouTube? And I get it. That's another uh, another way that people could listen to it. But I thought if we do video, I want to do something different. So it's not exact. It's the same, but it's not. You know, we call it highlights, bonus features, and outtakes. If uh, I don't know you perfection, Steve, but we we make mistakes and we laugh and, and go off on tangents and I'll sometimes cut those out of the pop, put them in the uh, video version. And, uh, that I, I kind of do that a little bit crazy. Um, cause there'll, there'll be funny things he, he does on camera. You're on camera as microphones. So we, we like to have a good time with it. Yeah, I think so. And it, it's usually utilizing the medium as it's supposed to be. If you're going to put something where it has a visual aspect, you, you it behoove you to take advantage of the visual because people tuning in there are going to wonder, well, why aren't they putting anything visually there? If, you know, it, I could just listen to this and not have to be on YouTube. So it's, to me, it makes sense. If you're going to go into that area, you should incorporate the, the take advantage of that format. Yeah. And we're trying to build up that channel as well. We've got other content on there last year for the countdown to Halloween. I did a little, my favorite scenes in horror movies and every day for 31 days did a clip of my favorite scenes from horror movies. And we've got some dark shadows videos and some other things on there. I, I did coincidentally just learn that I do have a customized uh, URL for our channel. So I'm going to start putting that out there so people can find it easier. Uh, before that, I just said search for it, but uh, we'd like to build that up. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, it's really started because a long time ago, I would post little clips from Dark Shadows. And to this day, every week I get hits on that and people making comments that Dark Shadows fan base is is huge. And um, so, yeah, anyway, for whatever that's worth, I and I love making the little videos and uh, it's fun. I know what you mean. David Selby store, number one episode. So, I mean, when you hit something with dark shadows, it just, it, it seems that, that that group is always looking for content and everything else. And then they seek it out and they are, they know how to search the web. Now, Waterloo bridge started off as a play in I think 1930. And um, just like journey's end started off as a play. And of course, James whale um, took the plague and made it into a film. And he did this, really well um i enjoyed it a lot i'm glad that um you chose this one it's like oh i want to do waterloo bridge and i was just like oh cool what's this about and i looked it up and i was just like oh this i couldn't believe the cast that was in it and the cinematography the cinematographer who was doing it i mean you're talking about people that have won oscars down the road that are in this or nominated for oscars and also in a ton some of them long lists in the movie credits and if you want to give people, Jeff, a, a brief synopsis of what the movie's about, so that way they have an idea what we're talking about. And I do want to add, unlike Journey's End, the play was not a success. It uh, closed after 64 performances, and yet uh, Carl Emily Jr. at Universal needed a, a, a big prestige picture and thought he could turn that play into that, which, I, as far as I know, and we'll probably talk about, was successful. It, gave him just what he wanted. 
But the story is, uh, on, on one hand, a typical wartime love story. May Clark plays Myra. She's a showgirl. And one night she walks down to Waterloo Bridge during an air raid, and she runs into a Canadian soldier, Roy Cronin, played by Douglas Montgomery. They fall in love. There's something there between them, though. We don't know quite what. She won't quite commit to the relationship, but he's in 100%. Takes her to see the family out in the country and proposes to her several times. She sometimes accepts, sometimes doesn't, but very wishy-washy about it. And um, ultimately, without any spoilers, you know, the movie is ultimately about the outcome of their relationship, uh, what happens. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, hit all the key points. Yeah, I think so. And, and the only thing I think that wasn't stressed enough is they established early on in the movie, and I think this is one of the things with pre-code Hollywood, is she did not take another job as a chorus girl, and she regretted it. And it's like this picks up, like, it shows you right there in her last performance as a chorus girl, and then picks up, like, I think two years later. And now she is um, a prostitute. And... That's why she goes to Waterloo Bridge because that's where the, the, the soldiers are coming back for leave to see if she can pick up because she needs to make her rent and that kind of stuff. And you can see how in the two years, like she's a lot, she's a lot more hardened, you know, and um, and from from doing that aspect of her career. And also, again, pre-code Hollywood, like when they were doing the chorus thing, when they were um, cha- in the changing room, you were seeing things that – for most people that think movies in the thirties and forties, you would never be seen, you know, a lot of the women down to their lingerie, uh, that kind of stuff. And they would never have the aspects of what it was to be like a prostitute going out there and doing them. Cause this is, it's throughout the film, um, is that she is. And though you don't see her having, you, you don't really see her with men doing the, the deed, so to speak, but it is, it is there. And that was her big, reason why she never wanted to accept the proposal is because she knew he never knew what she was really like and that kind of stuff. And it was kind of like interesting how, you know, she was charmed by him because of his nativity and, but yet she wanted to tell him, but couldn't tell him because she didn't want to break that illusion of knowing that he was going back to war. Yeah, so that's a. I, I purposely didn't mention that because that is the secret that's between them that prevents their relationship. And was I dense or to me, I didn't even really know that till quite a while. You suspected, and there are clues. And that's one thing I really liked about it was that uh, you know when when he left her apartment one night, uh, you know she's tired, she's going to go to bed. Well, no, she sits down at her vanity and she puts on her hat and her lipstick not happy this is the one thing i really like about it too not happy about it she you know you can just tell she's doing what she has to do but she doesn't want to be doing it and she goes out so pretty i mean pretty much you know but still it's not stated for a good long time and she finally does that when she goes to the country and talks to his mother and that's the first time she confesses to anyone what she really is so therefore, that's the first time we really hear that. And I was a sucker for it because I, I wasn't really sure till that point. And mm-hmm. I took that as a, not a twist, but like a revelation. And I was like, aha, that is what it is. You know, how tragic. 
Unlike, did, did you know definitively earlier than that? That's yeah, I knew. I knew right when they were when she was talking about she could have been in that that course. She could have been in that course and in that play, and the way she was talking with Kitty, like who, who was playing like her best friend or a good friend. Yeah, and the way they were talking about, let me show you to get men and that kind of stuff. At that point on, I knew. Oh, she went to um, a lady of the evening, and um, and that kind of thing. So, so to me, it was within the first what five minutes. I kind of knew where you know her whole story, and also the way she was more hardened and the, her body yeah. language, the way May Clark played it. I could just tell. I think it could be just a difference of where we grew up. You know, from when I was like around five to eighteen, I grew up in Baltimore City. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, and, and, and so I, you, there are certain things that, um, you could see or encounter when you're driving around at night or, you know, being driven around at night and that kind of stuff. Um, so you could, I think, I think where I was raised and where you were raised, you know, maybe, maybe you're exactly like, um, um, Roy Cronin's character. You're just like, you know, oh yes, she's just, you know, you don't notice it because you, you just didn't know. And for those that are in the know, they could tell pretty quick, <laughs> what was going on. So I think, I think that kind of interesting. It's almost like you're, you're very Roy like, and, and I'm very, um, I'm more, I'm more like Myra like, you know, in, in, in this aspect with, with some certain knowledge. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I possibly, I mean, Oklahoma, Canada, uh, small town, you know, very much could be, but you know, it's interesting that, uh, he, he was going to see his mother in the country. And I, I, again, I wasn't really putting two and two together, but he's from Canada. Why is his mother in rural England? And even then when we see, and this sort of misled me too, because I thought it was going to be more of a culture clash of a poor woman and a rich family because they live in this beautiful estate and they have, and the, the father is a British major. Well, it makes sense. I just didn't think of that that's his stepfather. And, you know, whatever happened to his father, his mother remarried and they lived in England, but very well off. And, uh, but again, the thing I really liked most was that relationship with the mother, uh, Mrs. Weatherby played by uh, Enid Bennett, right? Yes. She's not the stereotypical, like, you get out of here, you're a whore, you know, I don't want you anywhere near my son. She's very understanding. She still doesn't want her anywhere near the sun, but she's kind to her. She, you know, she becomes sort of a friend of the family. She, you know, wants her. She just doesn't necessarily want her to marry him. Although I kind of think once she sees how much he loves her and can see through that she really loves him, I think she's okay with it. I think, I think so too. When they had a great scene where actually two scenes, one was where that they're everybody else is playing tennis, and eventually it was just the two of them left on the bench. And uh, Miss Weatherby, I think her name was her first name was Mary or whatever, was very frank and said, I, "I really don't want you to marry my son, you know." But not knowing anything about her past and that kind of stuff, I think it's because she was looking at this as a whirlwind thing, you know, because they've only met for like a couple days at this point or a few yeah. days, and. And of course, her son kept saying, "Oh, this things happen so much quicker now." And then, so she, so she was very frank. And but it was not like saying, "Don't you dare marry my son." It was just they're having a conversation, and she just wanted to let her know yeah. where they stood. And, and 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 she kept inviting her stuff. Was very polite and nice to her. And then, um, Myra that night, May Clark's character went to see her 
and and explain to her that, as you said, that she was a prostitute, and um, that's why she kept you know saying no and would push back all a lot of these advances that Roy's character was doing. And before she had said that, Mrs. Wetterby goes, "Well, I know you're a fine woman." And then after she said she was a prostitute, she goes, "I'm not a fine." She goes, "No." I know you're a fine woman because you're telling me this and you're doing this. So yes, she understood why she was doing this to, in order to to live, to have food on the table, to have a place to stay. And I, I, but when Myra left, she goes back to her um um night not, not nightstand, but the the makeup mirror, the makeup table, and was sitting there and she grabbed a, a handkerchief and she was you know, a move of crying because she could see on the one hand, she's coming from this, this, this beginning, you know, where she's coming from, but she also knew that the two of them were in love. And I think she was just dealing with which way. And I think in her mind, the way she was treating her later in the movie, still very nice and wouldn't invite her to stuff. As I think she was thinking, Oh, if they ended up together, well, she will move out from that and she will still be this fine woman. And we'll just never bring this up because she never tells anybody else. She keeps it to right. herself. And so, it, but it's an interesting little character moment that um, Enid Bennett does, you know, with just the mirror and herself just looking at it. And it only lasts for a few seconds, but, you know, I think it was, it was a very good scene that she pulled off. He does find out, though. And uh, it does love her because it doesn't matter to him. You know, it's. It, it, a shift in his, you know, tone definitely. He's sad about. It. I I don't believe he's sad because of what she is, but just that, you know, she couldn't tell him, and he knows now that's what the issue. He still wants to marry her. I have a question for you. So in these cases, these wartime romances, and it's a race against time because he's got to get on his train to go back to war. He's been called back early, and you know, you got to marry me before I go. Marry me before I go. I'm kind of naive, but what? And I guess it was a different time where maybe a marriage meant something. I mean, does that kind of like lock her down so that she can't meet anyone else or get married to anyone else while he's gone? I mean, what does she do then now that she's married and he's gone? Does she go live with his family in the country? Uh, I just, I don't really know. I don't understand, I guess, the urgency because on the... uh, you know, by the same token, he could go off and die, and then she's a widow without even hardly knowing the guy. So, I what th- do you have to say about that? I think the way they established it in the movie is is one, she would get money from him from the government to help her. Um, so, okay. so that would keep her with a roof overhead, food. She would not have to be a person of the night, and. Um, also, if he was to pass away, then she would be got. She would be given a certain amount of money too, to help her out. Um, two, in his mind, I'm thinking he, like, she probably would move in with the family if she wanted to, and be and then she'd be fully taken care of because she'd be a member of the right. family. Now, whether that would stay that way after he passed away or not would depend on the relationship she had with the family, which um, w- which was established as everybody there liked her. Um, yeah, you know, especially the mother who knew of her past. Um, so I think that would have worked out well and she would have stayed there status quo. Uh, now looking at the other side of it, when she was talking to her friend, Kitty, 
and and they mentioned another person who has four husbands that are in war, you know, two from Australia, another one from Britain or something like that. It was four of them. And um, she's like, oh, she's okay as long as they all don't come back from leave at the same time or more than one. <laughs> and she's doing real well because she's getting all this money from four different people because one of them was, was her real husband to start the war with, and then she married three others. So there are people that work the system, you know, to get that, like, oh, if I do this and this and this, you know, I can get the money. So if she was somebody of who just wanted – get to work the system she could have gone for that aspect but i think her character is interesting in that when he offered her money to pay for stuff early on she first took it and it almost seemed like she was like setting up saying her whole thing to get it and then she realized i don't want to do this i'm not i don't want to get charity and so she gave it back to him and then yelled at him because she was fighting herself and with that conflict of like I need this money, but I don't want to do this for the money. And, and it's just uh, later on when she turns down this one guy, first she was going to say yes. Then she said that was, that was picking her up. And then she said no, because she, she, she started to realize she doesn't have to do this. She could go this other path, but then she was changing her mind. She was so conflicted throughout the movie. Yeah. It was, it was, it was very good. And I, and I like when you have a conflicted character, with that. So in a long way of answering your question, is it, it? I think with her particular thing, yes, she probably would have been taken care of. Um, the ending in the movie would have obviously been totally different if she would have said yes a lot sooner. <laughs> yeah, so I want to ask you about that, but I also want to say this is different than the stereotypical war romance also because she's conflicted from the start. A, a lot of times, and even stories that aren't you know war romances, one of them is, quote, bad and knows that it embraces that and then is turned by falling in love but she's conflicted from the start and i really like that i think that gives a fresh perspective now back to the ending we keep keep saying they would have done this they would have done that why is that are we going to uh tell what happens all right so what we're going to spend right now for listeners if you fast forward three minutes i'm going to i'm going to guess we'll, we'll talk about this ending for three minutes and that way if you scroll, if you skip up a few minutes, um, you'll be, well, we're going to spoil the ending. All right. So we're not going to spoil it. Um, she says yes to him just as he's getting put on the truck on Waterloo bridge to go off and a bombing raid is going on at that same time and a bomb drops and she dies End the movie. Yeah. I did not expect that at all. Did you? Um, I saw Journey's End, the movie prior to this one that James Will did, and it also had a um, a, a, a downer ending. So, and, and I find it interesting because people always associate the 1970s with downer endings. But here's a movie 1930, 1931, and I'm watching. You know, and for me, like back to back. I mean, I don't know how I haven't seen a ton of movies from this time frame. I've seen a good amount, but like the classical ones. But here are a couple that did well in the box office, and they both have downer endings. So it's, uh, I really don't know what to tell you. I think maybe maybe we've been building the 70s up as too much because we've, we've been so distant from the 30s or early 30s. The pre-code Hollywood might have had a lot more downer endings than I anticipated or just, or just could be these particular two. Yeah, that'd be an interesting subject to explore. I mean, everything goes in cycles and maybe the downer ending is part of that. I've never really thought about that. Did you like the ending? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I mean... 
not every movie has to have a happy ending for me. I think a movie with a happy ending is more likely to have repeat value for watching for the general people. But the acting was so strong with May Clark in particular. She was just owning the, the movie. It, it was her movie basically straight through. Um, I, I, I was fine with the ending, but it is, it, it's, it's, it is abrupt. I mean, it's basically end cut, boom, done. Where nowadays the movie ends and then they go on for five to 15 minutes of, be you know explaining or going to what you know other stuff which to me is sometimes really good and sometimes it's just like you're just extending the movie i liked it i, I mean it could have ended happily i thought it was going to the camera raises and pulls up and she's walking down the bridge could have faded out and been fine but you know then i got kind of suspicious they show a boat going under the bridge and then a plane in the sky and I'm like what's going on and then boom and uh it didn't end quiet as abruptly for me because they did like then do a slow pull out and you see her fur and her purse laying there. I mean, but I think it, if it had the happy ending, I would have thought, Oh, that's a nice sweet movie, you know, and kind of let it go. This left an impact. This made me think, wow. You know, it made me think about it a lot more. What have I just seen? Um, did you, I've read a couple things, and I mean, I know you can always inject things into movies that might not have been intended, but do you think there was a purpose for that ending? Why, you know, some big scheme that they were, a statement they were trying to make by killing her? I mean, what I read was it was punishment for her sins, you know, that, and the sin wasn't that she was a lady of the night. The sin was that she fell in love. I mean, do you really think they think that hard about it when they're making the ending? I, I don't think. Well, you'd have to think, because I think it probably the play ended the same way, and I'm guessing. And I really don't see it as this judgmental thing. I think they were just looking at it as this, an ending that's going to leave impact. I don't think there was, mm-hmm. like, some cosmic force saying, you will not have happiness because of blah, 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 blah. That could be other people just reading into it. I, I don't see that at all. I just look at it as if she would have made a decisive decision earlier if she would have realized what she had in this happiness she never would have been there this never would have happened and it's it's her whole timeline would have been different but because of the not wanting you know that whole conflict going on with her the whole time it led to her being at that particular spot at that particular time which led to her demise and i think that was it so if if you were to look for a a a meaning into it, it you could i mean I guess you could say, um, when you see when you see something there, don't don't wait around. You know, you know, take that chance. Um, mm-hmm. There's a guy who turned 100 years old 20 some odd years ago, and I remember him being on the news, and he turned 100, and he was sharing all the usual stuff: eat well, do this and that. But one thing I never forgot, and actually it's been 30 years ago, that he said, and he said, "Don't hit the snooze. The Lord might not give you a second chance." And it's funny, but it, it's so profound, and it applies to this. Here she kept hitting the snooze. Oh, I'm not going to accept it, not going to accept it, which delayed her getting to where she needed to, where she was going to end up being anyway, where if she would have moved earlier, her whole life would have been different. But because she um, kept pausing on it and pushing back and forward, for, for I think legitimate reasons. I mean, it is a whirlwind relationship and that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I can understand. And 
and I, and I understand where both of them are coming from, and I think they're portraying things that were that way. The playwright was in World War One that wrote this, so he did, he's basing this off possible personal experiences, you know, or experiences that people in the trenches were telling him. So it's it's hard for me to say one way or another. But I don't I don't think there was some cosmic reason for the ending. I think that's people that read into it. Like those same people are reading the Gilligan's Island and come up with like all these different meanings of life. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I'm just that I'm always curious about that intentions of the filmmaker versus interpretations of the audience. And I think that a movie that causes different imp- interpretations or that people can read something into it is the sign of a good movie. If it can make you think and make you, you know, wonder and put these speculations into it, then it's, probably served its purpose i talked about that last scene i also want to talk about the first scene i think it's spectacular and it's so interesting because it's it's a look what looks like a single shot you know the camera i'm sure it's a crane shot it starts up but the way it's framed is you see we're eventually going to come to the stage and we're going to slowly pan across all the dancers and then we're going to focus on may clark and zoom in but it opens with the stage is just half the screen and the other half is, you know, the, the balcony and the box seats of the audience of the theater. And it so it kind of comes down there and then pivots over and then goes, it's just a very interesting shot that is, was unique. I think at least from, from movies I've seen, I wonder, Oh, and what else is interesting about that? That was added after the movie was made and they saw the, preview screen or the dailies or the uh, rough cut or something. And they go, yeah, we have something here. Let's put some more money in it and shoot that first scene. So I don't know how much James Whale himself had influence on that, or if it was the cinematographer, but I just, that, that adds a scale and a scope to it. Although it is sort of an intimate story. I, I just really liked that first scene for many reasons. I think probably James Whale was looking at it and probably decided to put it in there because one of the things Universal loved, I think it's the, the Lamleys, Lumleys, Lamley, loved is that he yeah. came in $50,000 under budget. And um, so that was the reason he got to choose his next property. So any of the things we're, we have ready to go, what do you want to pick? And he, of course, picked Frankenstein, which we'll be talking about with Rich in another episode. But it was, um, but speaking of the cinematography, Arthur Edson was the cinematographer and you can't at that time get anybody much better. I mean, he was nominated for actually not nominated, but won three Oscars, you know, in old Arizona, all quiet on the Western front and Casablanca. Yeah. He's just a, you know, hired hand. And, and what do people think of that particular last movie I mentioned, Jeff? What do people, some, what do a lot of people rate that movie? Well, it's one of my favorites. Yeah, some people. I mean, one of the best movies ever made. Exactly, one of the best movies ever made, and so, and of course, he, he we'll be talking about him next episode with Frankenstein, but he also did the Maltese Falcon and the Invisible Man. But I mean, he's, he's got a long credit. I was just picking cherry picking some of them, but the, definitely a three time Oscar winner doing your cinematography and movies that people consider classics and. Yes, James Will has a lot to do with it, but unless you have that person that's able to help that director get that vision with the camera, 
you might have some things lost. And the two of them seem to be like a perfect marriage, you know, because they did several films together, which are considered classics. I mean, what else can you say about Arthur Edson? I mean, his eye, and I think that's what we're noticing in these, this film, how, how he went about doing that shot and setting it up is just amazing. How do you feel about the stage play to theatrical film translation? A lot of plays to movies are very stagey. I mean, Dracula's criticized for that. I There are parts that are talking, and apparently the play takes place entirely in her apartment. But I didn't really notice that it, it didn't seem stagey to me, did it, to you? No, and I think that goes back to him doing Journey's End, which is also a play moved in the film which doesn't seem as staged. And now when, it, you know, you would assume it t- takes place all in there, like the, the officer's bunker. And, but then when it goes out and shows some of the battle scenes and some of the other things, and it goes into the trenches, I think it goes to James Whale's direction and using the cinematographer and taking advantage of it. Now there are scenes that were there that you can tell it is a, um, a, a matte painting, type thing, you know, backdrop yeah. when they're showing certain things. And, and, and they don't have a ton of sets that they, they were using for the outdoors or, or dressing and that kind of thing. And um, I think that goes to the budget that they had for the film. I mean, you, get, you only have so much money. And also, you're not able to use those real locations. Uh, so, but I think, I think for the overall, the most part, I think it worked really, really well. And I think it goes to his vision to be able to take stuff being a successful, who's an actor, a director on the stage before he became a filmmaker, I think he's able to take those things in the hand. And I think having him be an actor prior to that and a very good mimic, I think that showed very well when you said with Douglas Montgomery, who was billed as Kent Douglas on the thing and then changed his name back to his original name. Um, he'd spent, like you said, he stopped production for, I heard three days just to work with him to get him up the snuff and to get him through the film because of his, um, lack of knowledge and, you know, and, and, and the craft. And I think that not many directors have that acting direct acting director background. A lot of them are just directors only. And I, I think, I think when you have somebody who was an actor on the stage, he was able to get the performance he wanted out of him. And I know I'll be bringing that same thing up again, the next time we talked about Frankenstein, because I have some information about how he helped another actor do certain thing that people consider classic, a tease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anybody that listened to the James Curtis interview, too, would that it wasn't. I do also want to mention it's not strictly the stage play script. There were a couple of other writers. Tom Reed is is credited for the screenplay. However, he did write some scenes that didn't end up. I don't think James Whale liked them. So Ben Levy uh, was brought in and is credited, at least in what I read, for some of the uh, successful, significant changes to the story. Yeah, I think it was. And a, I don't recall what those are. I think I read it was there was a lot more. There was going to be some war scenes, and that they took those mm-hmm. scenes out. So they maybe would have showed more of um, um, Roy's character coming from the war, or something with battle scenes, you know, prior to it, or maybe. It was going to have a different ending for him too. You don't know. Like maybe he won and, and, and he also had a bad time. I mean, it's hard to say. We've not ever seen those scripts, what it could have been, but I think it was editing out the war part. 
Yeah, and they didn't really want it to be a war movie, did they? And they wanted it to be a, a drama romance. Yeah, and I think if this movie was made nowadays, there would be this big focus on his character, like showing these war scenes and all these other scenes and, and that kind of stuff going on, which really has nothing at all to do with the story, but it will just be like, oh, we, we can do it. You know, we got a budget. Let's throw it in there. And I think knowing what the story is about, which is what James Whale had the writers focus on, and focus on that story really is what makes this work. You know, instead of trying to make it too much, it's like, let, what is this story about? Let's focus on this. What do you think? I also, also wanted to ask you, and you've seen more of the non-genre James Whale films than I have. Did you know, are you noticing any significant traits that show up in a James Whale film regardless of the genre? I have one that I'm thinking of from what I've seen, but I'm just curious what you've found. Well, Right now, you're catching me early on because I'm trying to watch them just before I do the reviews of them. So there's, okay. so I've seen all the, all the horror genre ones. Those I've seen, and Showboat, besides Journey's End and this one, because Showboat I recorded with Rod Burnett already. We just it hasn't come out yet for listeners, but it'll be coming out later on. I've yet to see. Uh, there's there's certain, the thing I notice of him is the use of camera, and the way they they like to have, at least one or sometimes more certain shots which he's been um, blessed with having the cinematographers that can do it you know and pull it off like showboat has almost a 360 shot during old man river that's just that's just breathtaking you know and, and, and that was done in 1936 so it's like these these things that were done in the 30s that people were like oh they can't do that back then because they da, 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 da. well obviously they could because these guys found a way to do it I'm just saying it could be why this guy Arthur Edson won three Oscars and has been on such great movies. I mean, you know, you, you find people that know what they're doing, but I've noticed he loves to have certain performers and he has, he has a certain stable performers that carry from movie to movie or you'll see in a lot of different ones. And I'll add certain character types. We all know Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible Man, Una O'Connor. My opinion from even after watching this is that James Whale loved the shrill, sometimes comic relief woman character. Here it was the landlady, I think, not as extreme as Una, but definitely the same type. And to a certain extent, the, at the beginning, the woman on the bridge that drops her basket and um, Myra is helping her pick up. So, um, yeah, I just, I don't know. It could be often maybe this is the only movies that have it, but that's four movies that have it. So I would consider that a, a trait, something that he likes in his movies. Yeah, I think so. I think that that is a trait where he, he I think you need that, that comic relief. Not, it doesn't have to be an extreme part of it, but when you're doing a serious drama or a serious movie, you need that to help let the audience lower that tension. Cause if you just keep ratcheting the tension without that release, it, it can really hurt. And I think the best movies are the ones that know how to balance that tension, you know, so you're, so you're an enjoyable time during the movie. Cause at the end you want an enjoyable experience um, throughout the film where you, you have things that are memorable. And I think the nowadays in my mind, the movies I really gravitate towards the most have great characters and I think if you, because you remember the characters well after the movie, and if the plot works with the characters, then you really got a really good movie, possibly a great movie. 
and uh, I, and I think that's that's what I'm drawn to more and more. Where uh, it seems with a lot of movies, and I'm not just saying modern movies, but there's a, a lot of movies out there where the characters are not developed, and they they, they got these plots, they got these action scenes. But you can't remember anything about the characters at the end. You're just like, oh, yeah, so-and-so. Who were they or what were they? But if you have a, you know, an actor that's able to have a script that allows them to work with the material and the director that allows them to shine, then those are, those are the ones that I think those performances stand the test of time for me. Yeah. So if we agree that these characters, this Una O'Connor type character is a comic relief, I think that says something about James Whale's sense of humor because Una O'Connor is lover or lever. You know, some people find that hilarious, but it is extreme and other people don't see that as funny. It's a flaw of those movies is that extreme characterization. So I think that's got to come from James Whale. It probably does. And I never, it never bothers me because I know what it's there for. You know, I think it's sometimes it's somebody that's watching a movie way maybe a little too much. You know, it's like if a, yes. if, if a certain minor character is starting to drive you a little nutty, maybe maybe you should take a break from that movie for a couple of years, give yourself some distance, and then come back and see it the way it was intended. Nobody thought people were going to be watching these movies over and over and over. You know, except maybe when they're in the movie house, they might say if they really, really liked it, they'll go back and see it again. But it's not like nowadays where they're, oh, yeah, they're going to get the DVD or the streaming and they're going to watch it over and over, freeze frame it, isolate scenes, you know. It, it's So I, I'm not going to flaw filmmakers back then doing things like that because they're looking at it as a one and done, possibly twice you're going to see it. If they're really, woo, you might see it three times, you know. But I mean, <laughs> so I'm, I'm – I'm, I'm, I'm very forgiving about that because you have to look at it at that time when how the, how the, um, it was absorbed, how everything was being consumed. Right. I guess the last thing I would like to discuss is a little bit about Clark. I don't know a lot about her. I assume because of the timing that she came up through silent films. And I Who, do May know Clark? that that's another reason. May Clark. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, did I say May West again? No, no, yeah. I was just making sure you're talking about May Clark. I heard you say May. Okay. No, you didn't yeah. say May West again. Yeah. You said May East. No, I'm I, kidding. That just rolls <laughs> off the tongue for me faster. I don't know why. Uh, and I do know that's another reason that uh, Carl Emily Jr. wanted this big prestige picture because sound was pretty new and, and he wanted to maximize on that. So I did. I mean, IMDb, look, she was in a number of silent movies. And I noticed in this movie, very strong facial expressions. And I wonder if that's something that is trained, you know, coming through silent movies, because that's what you have to use. You have to over-exaggerate. And I must admit, as as good as she is in this character, it, it borders on overacting to me just a little bit, especially her big scene. Uh, it's, I mean, it's great. She did a fantastic job, but it's so close to the edge for me. Uh, I don't know if you feel the same way. I don't feel the same way for the reasons you brought up. You, you, when you're going from the silence to the talkies, you, you, some actors are able to transition on a dime and other ones take a few films. Also remember, she was huge at this time frame. I mean, she, was take, she did six films in 1931, I think eight films in 1932. So in a, in a two-year period, 14 films. And, and she was in – most, most probably one of the most famous scenes, Public Enemy with James Cagney, right. where she gets half a grapefruit 
put into her face. Now was what led her to get this film. You know, it gave her the recognition for that. And, and yes, she was not a, a big part of that public enemy, but people just remember it because every time James Cagney retrospectives pop up or they're showing film clips of them, that scene is there always. And it's her face that, that, that suffers. I, I think I read somewhere her ex-husband would, when that movie was out, kept had it timed and would keep showing up at the movie theater to see public enemy just to show up exactly when the grapefruit got there and would leave. And he, like he did this multiple times. So it's, <laughs> it was, there was one person who saw it way too many times. Um, and also I think she was only 21 when this film was done. She was very young, but she was, yes. we'll be talking about her in our next episode in the, the retrospective Frankenstein. She was in fast workers where she was directed by Todd Browning, um, flying tigers with John Wayne. She was in singing in the rain. I mean, so she had a long career. She ended up having um, a car accident, which left her with some facial scarring, and she still did some starring roles, but eventually had to, it was not in the higher-budget pictures that she was used to before, and eventually she went into character roles and became a great, a great character actor, and that's where like, she got a lot of her credits later on. So she was a constant working actor, and I, I think, again, if we were to look at her body of work, we could probably see that transition where it's not what you're talking about, where borderlines on the overacting to see everything get improved and improved and more fine tuned. Because again, she's also only 21. So she's very young. And I think, mm -hmm. I think um, Douglas Montgomery was even younger than her. I think he was like 19. So it's. Yeah. And he played, I think in the movie, he was supposed to be three years older than her. Yeah. And of course, when you're talking about, Somebody in their nineteen or twenty-four. I mean, they, they, you know, it's it's not like it's a hard, right? It's not like it's a bit. It's not like you're getting like a fifty-year-old and you're trying to say they're thirty. <laughs> it just doesn't work. Or, or a teenager that's twenty-six. Yeah, yeah. Steve McQueen, play a teenager in the Blob. Yeah, you know, oh yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I I really appreciated her work. I mean, this this to me was because I is. The, and the movies I've seen with her focused in it, this is the best film I think that I've seen so far. I'm, I got some recommendations from some people to see fast workers. And um, so I'm, I'm going to probably watch that down the road uh, to, to, to see what that one's like also. Yeah. I have not really seen many of her movies after, you know, Frankenstein. I did. She have a lot of leading roles it, because in Frankenstein, it's a pivotal role, but it's very small. You know, she's not, and I just wonder, was this the peak as far as her being a leading lady, or did she continue to do that? Do you know? I'm not sure. I know she has a lot of credits. Um, yeah. I do know from what I read that she had more starring roles from this point, like in the mid to the mid thirties, I think it was like the mid thirties when she had the car accident and, um, and that kind of thing. So it's. And, and of course you hate to say it, but Hollywood, you know, you get a facial scar and it could be some, it could be small. It could be severe. It could be hidden by makeup, but you know, people just suddenly uh, turn off on people and it's just, and it's just sad, but it's just the set. It's, 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 it's the, the part of the job. It's the image, so to speak. And, um, but obviously, like I said, she was able to continue her career, but it just, she went to um, lower, more lower budget movies where she had leading roles. And, uh, but she, she's got a lot of credits, um, way more than Douglas Montgomery. You know, he doesn't have many credits, but 
Yeah. He does have he does have one big one, Little Women. With the, the Little yeah. Women being the 1933 one with Catherine Hepburn. So because Little Women, there's multiple versions of Little Women. So it's, right. And and one of my little favorites he's in. I'm gonna have to watch this again just to look for him. The Cat and the Canary. That's the Bob Hope version, right? I think so. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm curious to see, you know, that one, you know, and I'm just to look for him and it, cause it's, it's later right. on. It's, I think it's the late thirties, maybe in the forties or something like that. When it came out, it was, it was near the end of his credits and um, just to see how much did he improve as an actor, you know, with some chance to get some work underneath his belt and to show it. But I think, I mean, is he as strong as May Clark in this? No. Um, it could be the way it was worked, right? It could be his lack of experience and, you know, having to be worked through it. Uh, but I think that end scene where the landlady explains to him different things and how he, you can see this internal rage and you can see the tears welling up in his eyes and how he gets gruff. I don't think he was angry about finding out that she was a prostitute as much as the way the landlady was talking about her. And I think because that's the person he, in his mind, he loves her. And, and here this person is talking bad about somebody you love. And and you know as well as I do, like you have a daughter, I have a daughter, somebody or a loved one, my wife, if somebody's talking about them, it doesn't take long if they keep going on and on before you and I are going to flip that switch. And, mm-hmm. we're, you know, because you, you're now talking about family or a loved one and we're just going to eventually have words. Yeah, and he probably knows deep down inside what's going on. I mean, there has to be an explanation for her continually sending him away and denying his proposal. He he knows there's something, and maybe he doesn't want to say it, you know, acknowledge it. But, yeah, when the landlady does, he doesn't like that. Yeah, because also up to that point, he thought of her as a nice lady. Cause he kept telling her, but Oh, she's such a nice person. And uh, right. when he was talking to Kitty and Kitty's like, Oh yeah, yeah. She's really nice. You know, <laughs> and then he found that yeah, so a little different. He's not, he's not just naive. I mean, he's, I feel like he's a good person. He's a good person. Who's, who's learning the world. And, but also he, he'd already served over in world war one. So he's seen horrific things. And I think, when you see that stuff, you come back to civilization. You want to believe all the good. You want to see the good. And I think there, there's. It, I think nowadays if it feels redone. I think an actor who could re, you know maybe pull it off a little better and show that range of emotion of like, and 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 I could see a scene being added to where maybe he's talking to his mother about like you know when he comes back. You know, seeing with him just explaining about how it's like going from here to there would be something nice and a more modern thing. But again, the movie was focused more on Myra than him. So I don't mind that. But I'm just saying is I could see it, like, give him a scene where it'd be really nice that that transition coming from seeing death and destruction. And now you're back for a brief respite before you go back into this hellhole again. I, I cannot, and I know you can't imagine what that would be like. And and thankfully we have people that are willing to serve for us to do those things so that we don't have to go through those situations. And, but it's just still to put yourself through those, that, that turmoil. It's, it's, it, I, I can't 
never imagined. And he's really good in the the setting in the country home with his family. He seems more relaxed, more comfortable. You can tell he's there. And oh my gosh, we haven't talked about Betty Davis. Oh no, we're building our way to her. It's, 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 Betty Davis. How many films can we see that where Betty Davis is listed six on the on the casting thing? and small print? Yeah. <laughs> I love what I read about her. Like the whole time during filming, she was thinking I could have played Myra, you know, I can do that. I love that. That's so Betty Davis. <laughs> yep. And you know what, you know, you and I um, both know she could have, you know, <laughs> it was interesting because her first scene is at the table and you only see the back of her head. And I wondered, Oh, you know, this is really, really a bit part. We see a little more of her later, not a lot. You know, she doesn't have much to do, but, uh, yeah, I, it, it was, I think it was fun to see her. Betty Davis for, for, for listeners who only know the name. I mean, I'm just going to read a tiny fraction of the credits, but I'll just, I'll just start with the Oscars. These are, these are the two movies she won Oscars for dangerous and Jezebel. And then now I'm going to go over the list of Oscars. She was nominated for but did not win all these for, for best actress of human bondage, dark victory, the leather, the little foxes, now Voyager, Mr. Skeffleton, all about Eve, the star, one of your guys' favorites, whatever happened to baby Jane. Mm-hmm. And some of my favorites that I enjoyed watching her in return from which mountain, the watcher in the woods. Cause I got to bring up the, the Disney finger. Michaela would kill me. Death on the Nile, and one of my favorite movies with her, Vincent Price, Lillian Gish, The Whales of August, which was near to the very end of her career. Wonderful. And I would be remiss if I didn't add to that list for Hammer Films, The Anniversary, The Nanny, uh, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, and one of my favorite performances of hers, Burnt Offerings. Dan Curtis, Dark Shadows, you know, I put that in there. Yeah, she's a, a legend. I've never seen a bad Betty Davis performance. Have you? Oh, so you've not seen her last film, Wicked Stepmother? No, I've never have. <laughs> so you're saying, you're saying don't see it, huh? Actually, I don't know why I said that. I was just cracking a joke. I don't think I've ever seen it. But. Oh, okay. But no, it's um, it's uh, every performance she gives is amazing, but it's so, it's so interesting to see her. I think this is like her third film, something like that. She's only done, she only did a couple films prior to this one. And, you know, it's just, you see her and you're used to seeing like the older Betty Davis, the commanding Betty Davis, the one who owns the strong. And here she is playing the sister and she's sweet and nice. And that's all, you know, it's, it's, it's a one note, Thing. That's all the character was there. The character only has a few lines, is only in a few scenes, and some of her lines are spoken off camera where she's during the tennis match where she's just saying stuff. Um, they don't show the match at all, and it's just. But you you enjoyed her character, but it's it's but for those of us that have seen Betty Davis at all these performances, it's so different than the performance you would think of. But again, you got to go. You got everybody has to start somewhere. I meant to mention it earlier when you talked about it and you just did again, that tennis match. I, I love how you don't see them playing tennis. You just see the people watching and they're calling out to the players on court, you know, good shot or whatever. And, 
I, I part of me kept waiting for the camera to spin and us actually see the, the, the court. And then I thought, well, that may be a product of the low budget, but I think it was pretty well done. I, I like that. I think so too. And also she was playing against her dad, her stepdad, the major who's elderly. I mean, I think the guy was like 70, late sixties or 70. That was playing him in real life at that time. Um, Frederick Kerr who we'll talk about the next episode because he's in Frankenstein as the Baron. And those are pretty much, you look at his credits, he was always an admiral, a major, a a baron. He's always some aristocratic or military person. And he he, he did the roles well. And, you know, and and he provided a little bit of comedic elements because he was hard of hearing, but yet he never told anybody. He's like, oh, you're all just mumbling. I can hear perfectly fine, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. So it was, it was an enjoyable family role. His character and Betty Davis's character were the minor ones of the main family. It was really Mrs. Weatherby, which we talked about earlier, who was the main family member, the matriarch of the family to talk about. And, and speaking, there's one performer we, we mentioned, Kitty, who's played by Doris Lloyd. And she played the other prostitute that we meet early on, the friend of Myra's. And she has a ton film credits, like over 150. I don't know. It's, it's some amazing amount. And hmm. some of the movies I know I've seen in the past, Tarzan, the, the ape man, you know, so she was in that mutiny on the bounty, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think it was the 1941 one. That would be what, what Spencer Tracy. Is that right? Jeff Spencer Tracy did 19. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And universal, but the ghost of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, the invisible man's revenge. These next three are some of my favorite movies on this list. Adam's Rib, Mary Poppins, and The Sound of Music. Think about the length Mm. of this career and the diversity. Now, some of these, the last few I mentioned, she might have uncredited or small roles. But to be in all these different productions and films, I mean, it's just just amazing. The the, the link, you're talking about a multi-decade career, obviously, was well-liked or at least well, a very good professional because why else would be getting all this work? And she did, she did a great job. I think she was, um, her early forties at this time, you know, late thirties, early forties. So she was playing the more world weary, um, version what Myra would be down the road is the way I looked at her. I was looking also, I had read that this was the film debut of Elspeth Dudgeon. And I don't actually know who she plays in, this movie, I it, I think it was a bit part, but I, I was looking at her credits and I had to laugh because she was in a, a movie you've done. I don't remember if it was on your podcast or Monster Kid Radio, but I don't want to say it because I like to hear you say it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, shh. The Octopus. Yeah, that was on Monster yes. Kid Radio. <laughs> if, if you want to hear that, that episode, go to Derek Cook's show, Monster Kid Radio, and um, do a search and you'll find it, but shh. Essay to like, shh, the octopus. That was a fun, that's a fun little movie. <laughs> yeah. And she was also in the old dark house pivotal role. Um, not going to say it because that is somewhat of a surprise if you watch the old dark house. And we'll be talking about the old dark house later on. I'll be doing that one with um, a different person than you and Rich. It's not, it's not Rich and Jeff with me every movie they're, they they get they're doing with me the first three and maybe they'll be coming back when we do a round table to discuss the impact of james whale's career but we have other podcasters like rod burnett um 
coming on, some writers, historians coming on, and filmmakers like um, Joshua Kennedy, Ansel Farage, and Sam Irvin are going to be coming to talk about particular movies that they really enjoyed. Um, one of them is going to be doing The Old Dark House, one The Invisible Man, and Sam Irvin's doing The Bride of Frankenstein because you can't do The Bride of Frankenstein without Sam Irvin because it's in a, it's in the 11th commandment, you know. <laughs> Bride of Frankenstein must be done with Sam Irvin. <laughs> Well, I'm happy to be included in that group. That's a great group, and uh, it's fun to talk about a movie that's not a uh, horror movie and not a musical. Oh, yes, because for, do- for those that are wondering, <laughs> Jeff and I did early on a Jeff pick when we did a musical, and we picked what, – what movie did you pick for us, Jeff? What gem? The Pirate Movie. Yes, The Pirate Movie with all its love. And and, and, and both him and I did not recommend it at the time um, – but, but you sit- know what? I've changed. I do recommend it now. And I, was I say, think everyone should watch the pirate. And I've have since also changed. And I think I've said this on another episode or whatever that I now do recommend the pirate movie also, because it really the part that bothered me was the beginning leading up to the dream sequence. But the, the vast majority of the movie, you know what? Four fifths of the movie is in the dream sequence. If I like four fifths of the movie, why, why, why am I letting one fifth drag me down? You know, so it's, 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 it's good, fun, go in it and not expect, you know, don't go in expecting Casablanca or, 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 or the Maltese Falcon, <laughs> go in expecting fun, you know, and, and you'll enjoy it as Christy McNichol. So what's not to like? I'm not even going to, I'm so proud to hear you say those words. I'm not going to say anything. I mean, you know, it's, it's got her. I mean. Hopefully one day I'll be able to interview her. You know, that, 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 I know that he's like, ah, oh, yes. <laughs> Things I'd like to be room. your production assistant on that one. <laughs> yeah, like, I'll, go, I'll, go to, I'll go to wherever she is and I'll hold the microphone for her just to make sure <laughs> your audio is good. <laughs> well, you know, you always, you always will be allowed to hopefully, you know, participate in that interview or whatever or something like that, you know, either via questions or something or maybe – She'll allow two interviewers to do it. You never. There you know. go. Or maybe, maybe you can get her to do to interview her for your podcast, even if she's never done anything that's classic car. You'll you'll find a way to make it work. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I might have to revisit Dream Lover. She did that. I was gonna say you you know her filmography better than I do. Well, we got way off track. I doubt if there's any influence of James Whale on the pirate movie. Um, <laughs> anything else you wanted to talk about with? Uh, Waterloo Bridge. No, I enjoyed it. I'm glad you picked it up. And um, for those wondering why it's called Waterloo Bridge, it's it's where the um, women of the evening go to pick up men at Waterloo Bridge. So that's so. If you know what the title means, then right away you would know Myra's character. Of course, it's been so many. We're in a different country, and it's been so many decades that it it, it meant nothing to me going into it. But it was explained rather early on. You know, when she said, "I'm going to Waterloo Bridge," and then you know. And, Later, when she tells the mom, I met him at Waterloo Bridge. And the mom knew right away. So it's something that obviously that was known in the movie verse. I don't know if it's a real place or not. I mean, that'd be interesting to find out if, if, if it's a real I think location. it is. I think it is. I saw something and I thought, oh, I should really impress Steve and do some research about the bridge. But sorry to disappoint. It's okay. At least we know it is. I wonder if women of ill repute went there to pick up men too. I wonder how true that was. So it could very well be true. I don't know. Whatever it is still I, now, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I bet there. I bet it was true. 
If not, we'll say it is. And if anybody wants to correct us, they can email me at diecastmoviereviewpodcast at gmail.com or share it on Facebook and correct us. That's fine. We always love feedback. Yeah, public, you know, correction is, is best to uh, embarrass people in public. Oh, sure. If, if they're right, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to be embarrassed when somebody puts up a wrong fact and then you're like, ah, oh, geez. Um, Jeff, besides doing the classic clubs, classic cars club podcast, you also are a writer. You mentioned one of the things you have articles in, we belong dead. What else do you do, Jeff? So people can know what that, where to follow you or read for read and that kind of stuff. Well, I like comic books. So I also do a comic book blog, DC comics guy. Uh, sort of on the side, but once a week, pretty consistently. On Wednesday, New Comic Book Day, I post a, a summary. I've been taking a character and doing their whole pre-Crisis on Infinite Earth run. Uh, some of the more minor characters that, you know, not Batman, Superman, I wouldn't attempt that, but Man Bat, Eclipso, Metamorpho, characters like that have some really fun, interesting stories. So I recap those and give my comments on that. I think that's the main other thing. Yeah, and it's enjoyable, and you can follow Jeff on Twitter, Facebook, anywhere else they can follow yeah. you. Uh, in Instagram, not not much there, but yeah, the big three. I go TikTok, do dancing videos, how to cook videos. Not haven't broached that subject yet. One day you will. One day you will. And, um, Jeff, thank you for joining me for Waterloo Bridge. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me anytime. Oh, anytime you want to come on. And actually, you're going to be joining me with Rich, as I said, <laughs> with Frankenstein. And um, That's right. I, I threw out the challenge to Rich. Hopefully, we can find some new things to talk about with Frankenstein because this is, so far with the first two movies, we're hitting stuff that most people don't know. Now we're hitting a movie that, that um, most people have either seen it or they know about it, you know, and we'll be in its 90th anniversary. So it, it, it's, I think it's a, whether we can come up with any different spin or whatever on it, I have no idea, but just hearing our reactions to it and talking about our things is going to be different than what anybody else is doing because it's coming from our perspectives. So even if we do hit the same territory, I mean, I hope listeners will enjoy it anyway, but I mean, I hope people get the idea with this retrospective that, there's a lot of James Wells work out there that's available to, to people to watch and enjoy. And this is one of them. And journey ends is journeys end is also, but right now, Jeff, I think it's safe to say we've reached the end of our journey on this particular movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, it's been fun. Oh, it I has. appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. And listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the James Well retrospective. Um, join us again for next episode where it'll be a movie review, an interview, or another episode of the retrospective of James Whale's career and life. As always, stay safe and try to find something to be happy about today. Watch a James Whale movie and enjoy yourself. Bye.
Away.